0: morning everybody how are you all doing we've been looking at um, the book of peter we started two weeks ago andrew did a great job of introducing us to the writer the apostle peter who wrote this letter and explained how going through life and the changes of life how he had grown through the processes of the different changes of life that he was going through so this morning we want to take another look here in 1 Peter chapter 1, and if you've got a Bible, you can turn with me to it, and I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Uh, the words are going to come up on the screen behind you as well, so if you don't have a Bible, that's also fine. But we want to start by answering the question, who is Peter writing to? Who are the people that Peter's writing to? What are they going through in their lives, and what does that mean for us? How does it connect with us today where we're at? Well, look at what it says right here in verse 1. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now, you might not know where those places are. I can hardly say them, never mind know where they are. But I'm going to give you a little bit of an explanation of where they are because it helps us to understand why Peter would write this letter to them at this moment in time. All of these areas are part in part of the world that used to be called Asia Minor, which is where we would probably call Turkey now, or North Syria. And it's an area of the world that's in between two of the great centers of that time in the world. The first, up to the northwest, is Rome. Obviously, this was during the time of the Roman Empire. And then down to the south here, beneath them, is Jerusalem. And they lived between those two centers. And what happened in those two centers impacted their world, and yet they were far enough removed from it that for much of the time they could maybe live at peace without being too impacted. But something's going to happen in these days which is going to change that for them. And I'll explain that in a minute. So who are the people that Peter's writing to? Well, we know that right away on the first sermon when Peter got up at Pentecost to preach, there were people from four of these provinces that were listening to him preach. In fact, they could hear some of the disciples speaking to them in their own languages where they had different languages. And they heard Peter preach and we know from the Acts of the Apostles that probably a good number of them were saved right then and there. And they would have made their way back to these provinces and started little gatherings of churches and because they'd heard the word in Jerusalem and begin to tell other people about the good news of Jesus Christ. About 10 years later, after that first sermon, a new wave of persecution broke out against the churches, um, starting around the time that James, who was one of the leaders in the churches, was beheaded, around AD 44. And that new wave of persecution in Jerusalem meant that there was another wave of people, like refugees almost, that left Jerusalem and the surrounding area and went off to try and find homes that were peaceful out in the provinces. So you can imagine that probably some of them ended up in these areas as well. And maybe they found the churches that were already there and became part of those churches. And then I'm sure that over time, other people joined the churches from the area. Maybe they came from a Jewish background, but maybe they weren't from a Jewish background. They were from a non-Jewish background, but they heard the good news about Jesus, and they joined in these churches. So since that second wave in AD 44, there's been about 20 years. 20 years when these churches have had some measure of peace. Some measure of being feeling like they're settled, and things are are going quite well. Yes, they were greeted with suspicion by a lot of the Romans, and there were probably little bits of persecution that happened here and there, but mostly they were able to live these peaceful, quiet lives in these provinces. But all of that is just about to change. In fact, it already may have begun to change. And it changes because what is happening in those two main centers. Let me unpack that for you a little bit. So in Rome, in AD 64, there was a fire. It burned for six days and burnt up much of what was ancient Rome. The people of Rome were extremely upset and they blamed Nero as the emperor. Nero in turn decided he needed to find somebody to blame it on and so he blamed it on the Christians on this so-called Jewish sect or Jewish cult, that that's what they thought it was, who were people that they were suspicious of for a number of different reasons. And Nero blamed the Christians, and as a result of that, there was a persecution that broke out against them that was really terrible. And there were horrible things that happened to men, women, and children during that time. And even though in the provinces there, the persecution wasn't quite so bad, yet the shakings of what was going on in Rome came into the provinces too. And things happened to people in the provinces who were called Christians as well. Not good things. That was one of the things that was going on in Rome. But soon after that, something else was going to happen in Jerusalem, which was even more horrific. Around the mid-60s, there was a group of people in Israel who started a revolt against Rome. And so they sent um, a soldier and his armies down to Judea to quell the uprising. They put down a lot of the uprising around Jerusalem and then they laid siege to Jerusalem. And in seventy they broke through the walls of Jerusalem. And when they broke through the walls after terrible siege that left a lot of the people in Israel hungry and starving and dying because of the siege. The Roman soldiers that got inside of the walls lost control. And the army and the generals lost control of those soldiers. They went about the streets killing hundreds, thousands of men, women and children. And then they made their way up to the temple. And when they got to the temple, they lit blazing torches. And they threw them through into the outer courts of the temple so that it began to set on fire. Titus, who was leading the Roman army, saw what was happening and he wanted to stop it. And so he got his generals together and they ran into the inner courts of the temple to try and stop the soldiers from carrying on doing what they were doing. But they couldn't stop them. The soldiers were so wound up, they just kept throwing these fiery brands and they threw them into the inner courts as well. And so the whole temple went up in flames and was burned and was destroyed. The people of Jerusalem were so horrified about what was happening that they rushed out to the temple to save it. Men, women, children, armed and mostly unarmed. And the Romans killed them all. It was a horrific genocide of Jewish population there in Jerusalem. And it shook the whole world around it. And so these folks in this area here, they really have two strikes against them now. They're part of that Christian sect that the people in Rome are trying to stamp out. And they're upset with them, but they're also known as a Jewish sect, even though many of them were not from a Jewish background. And so they're lumped in with some of these people who are revolting and uh, rebelling against Rome down in Jerusalem. And so they had pressure from both sides. And in the middle of these days, the Holy Spirit comes to Peter, probably the most well-known leader of the church at the time, and says, I want you to write a letter. I want you to write a letter to those people whose lives are going to be shaken if they're not shaken already. They've lived in quietness sort of for 20 years, but things are suddenly going to get a lot worse for them. And I want you to write a letter to help them to be able to stand. To help them to be able to hold on to their faith and their hope through the troubling times that they're coming into. What does that have to do with us today and where we're living today? Well, I think you'd have to say that our world is being shaken in a whole new way. The shaking is happening on our doorstep to the south of us, in Ottawa, to the east of us, around us, right here in in our world. It's a shaking that's gone to a whole other level. And as Christians, we've lived for a while now in a peaceful place where we've almost been respected for who we are. But that is quickly changing. It's becoming suspicion of who we are and what we stand for. And it could easily turn into something more, hostility even, towards us. Because of what we believe and what we stand for. And so as we've been looking for what God wants to say to us as the church in this day, as we thought, we're going to go to 1 Peter. Because it helps us to know how to stand in the middle of a shaking world. You don't know what this world's going to look like in five years' time. These people, their world was totally turned upside down. After 20 years of sort of settled peace, it was turned upside down in five years. It could totally happen to us too. And we need to know how to be able to stand and to be able to walk through the years that are coming upon us. So what does the Holy Spirit through Peter say when he sits down to write? Well, let's read some of it from verse 3 onwards here this morning. Blessed be, he says, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. of your soul. So let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for your words. Lord, they're alive today for us. They speak to every generation in every context of our lives. But Lord, I believe they speak particularly to us where we're at in our world today. And Lord, we can, uh, Lord, pretend that things aren't changing and things aren't going on around us. But the reality is our world is being shaken. And Lord, our Christian values are being torn down around us. And the values that this nation has been built on. And Father, these are shaking times and it could get worse before it gets better. But I want to thank you for these words and I pray you'd open up your heart to us this morning. Holy Spirit, what do you want to say to us in these days? Lord, we open our hearts to receive it. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Can you sense the tone of Peter's letter? From the moment he starts to speak. He wants to give these people he's writing to a gift. He wants to give them something. And what does he want to give them? He wants to give them, in a word, hope. Hope. Hope for what is now and hope for what is to come. And he gives four reasons here in the passage that we've just read, for having great hope, despite living in a world that's shaking. And I want to just go through those four reasons for great hope this morning. And the first is this, that God has given us an indestructible life. Look what he says in verse 3. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. There's nothing that can give you hope quite like seeing something that you thought was dead come back to life. That's got to be one of the greatest ways of giving people hope. I was uh, with my best friend in England who was a farmer growing up. Teenagers, we were going out in the early morning, frost on the ground, early spring, to look after the sheep that were up on the hillsides about to give birth to their lambs. You had to get there when they were birthing, whether it was in the middle of the night or in the morning or during the day, because many of those sheep needed help to get their lambs birthed. And on this particular morning, there was one sheep in that situation. We found them up against a, a hedgerow and the sheep was obviously in some sort of trouble and the lamb was not being born. So Michael took a look and we discovered that the lamb was turned the wrong way round. It was coming out with its back feet first, which is going to be a problem uh, for that sheep. And so Michael did what he had to do to help turn that uh, little lamb around so that the front legs came out first and then the head following the front legs and he brought out that lamb and finally it slopped out and down onto the floor and onto the grass with the frost in front of it. Michael did what he normally did. He would brush off the fluid from around the head. He would get a piece of straw. He would poke it into the nostrils of the lamb to get its breathing uh, opened up so that it could breathe. And then he stood back and nothing happened. The lamb lay absolutely still. He banged the lamb. He shook it. He did what he could to try and get this lamb to move. And the lamb was not moving. The lamb looked as though it had died right there in the birth canal. It was a beautiful, big baby lamb. I took the head of the sheep to stop the, her head from looking around to see what was going on behind her. She was already distressed enough. And we wondered what to do next. We thought, that's it. Lamb's gone. Need to find another lamb to put on her. Pretend it's her lamb and hope that that works and all the rest of it. But Michael wasn't done yet. And he went and he picked up this lamb by its hind legs. And then he started to swing the lamb like this. I thought, oh my goodness, what's he doing? And he swung it around quite violently in the air. And suddenly when it got to the top of one of the swings, there was a cough. And out of the lamb's mouth and nose came this all this fluid out of the lamb. And suddenly it started to shake itself. And Michael put it down on the ground and it struggled its way onto its feet. And the mother turned around and started to lick it clean. There's nothing quite can give you hope like seeing something that you thought was dead coming back to life. And that's exactly what had happened to Peter. Peter had gone with Jesus into Jerusalem. Been shouting and Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Everybody seemed so happy except for the religious rulers who were never happy about anything. But they were particularly not happy about having Jesus in the town at the time. But in the course of one week, that had all turned around. And now the crowd are shouting, crucify him. They whip him, they scourge him, they beat him. A normal Jewish beating is whatever, 39 stripes, something like that. But the Romans had no such limit. They would just keep going. Many people died just in the beating. They took his broken, bruised, torn body and they hung it on a cross. And he was crucified there. And he died there. They took his body down and they put it in a tomb. And Peter and his friends locked themselves away in a room. They were so scared that somebody was going to come and find them and do the same thing to them. And they weren't just fearful and scared, but they were broken and they were grieving. They'd lost what was the most valuable thing to them in the world. Jesus Christ, who had come to be their Lord and their Savior. And I don't think we can really understand, unless we've been in that situation, just how dark those days would have been. Three days, locked away, grieving, crying, wondering what was going to happen. Until on the third morning, there's a knock at the door. And they open the door and Mary Magdalene comes running through the door. She says, I I went to the tomb and and the tomb's empty, the stone's been rolled away. And and I met an angel and the angel told me that, that Jesus is alive and he's coming to see you. And Peter and John took off and they ran down to the tomb to see what was happening. They went into the tomb and the Bible tells us that John, when he looked, he kind of believed that something had happened that was miraculous. Peter wasn't so sure. Peter came out of that tomb. They went back to the room. They locked themselves back in again. They're trying to figure it all out. What's going on? People like John and Mary are saying, No, I think Jesus is alive. And Peter and the others are saying, No, no, he can't be alive. We saw him crucified. We know we've seen him raise people from the dead, but death finally caught up with him. And then in the evening, in the middle of their grief, in the middle of their fear, in the middle of all of their questioning, Jesus comes. And he stands in the middle of them. And they think, How can that happen? The door's locked. Jesus just appeared. It must be a ghost. It's just his spirit. I I don't know what he's doing here. But Jesus said, no, I'm not a ghost. Give me some fish. I'll eat the fish right in front of you. Which he did. And then he got them to put their hand into the marks in his hands and in his side. See, I'm real. I'm here. I'm risen. And that changed Peter's life forever. Nothing can give you hope quite like seeing something that you thought was dead come back to life. And here Peter and his disciple friends had thought that Jesus was the author of life. And yet death had finally caught up with him. And if death had caught up with Jesus, then there's no hope for anybody. But death could not hold Jesus. Because Jesus has an indestructible life. And Jesus promised that he would give that indestructible life to all who would believe in him. Just a week and a half before when he'd raised Lazarus out of the dead. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Never die. Even though they see death, they will never die. Why? Because this indestructible life that Jesus demonstrated in his own death and resurrection, he breathes into the life and the bodies of every person who chooses to believe and trust in him. The first great hope that Peter holds out for these people. Some of them are going to be put into prison. Some of them are going to be persecuted. Some of them are going to lose the lives of their loved ones. Some of them are going to lose their own lives. But the first hope that Peter gives them is. That God has given them an indestructible life. That's a wonderful hope to have. What's the second hope that. Peter holds out to these Christians. He says in verse four, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you." The second great hope that is held out to us by Peter here is that God is keeping a glorious inheritance for us. I don't know if you came across the story of the brothers Jolt and Gizar Palladi from Hungary. They were homeless. They were living in a cave and they were selling junk to try and get enough money to get themselves by every day. No hope of changing things, their life had been like this for a long time. But unbeknownst to them, their maternal grandmother had just passed away in Germany. And some charity workers came looking for the brothers to catch the brothers and to find the brothers. Because there had been an inheritance that had been left to them by their grandmother in Germany. Charity workers brought them to meet the lawyer. I don't know what they were expecting. Maybe a few pennies. Maybe a few dollars. Maybe a few pounds. What they got was the equivalent of 7 billion Canadian dollars. Is that good? It's an amazing story. Somebody died far away that they hardly even knew. And laid up for them an inheritance that was going to blow their minds away. Somebody died for us 2,000 years ago. And when he died, he laid up an inheritance for us. That is going to blow our minds away. We would throw 7 billion Canadian dollars out of the door as soon as we see what Jesus has for us. And Peter knows. Because Peter asked him that very question. He said, Lord Jesus, we left everything to follow you. Like I, I, I gave up my children's inheritance. I gave up my future. I gave up my job. I gave up everything I have to follow you. Well, what's there for us? And Jesus replies to him. And he says, out of Matthew chapter 19. Truly I say to you, in the new world when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne... You who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or hands, for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Peter had also heard Jesus say, in my father's house are many rooms. That word means dwelling places, or even mansions. Paul understood this when he quoted in 1 Corinthians 2 verse 9. No eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man what God has prepared for those who love him. This inheritance we receive will be incredible, astonishing, and eternally satisfying. David says in Psalm 16 verse 11, In your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You have an incredible inheritance waiting for you because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Look what Peter says about it. He says it's an inheritance that's imperishable. Anything you get in this world is going to rust, decay, fall away. At some point, it's going to be destroyed. But the inheritance you're going to get through following Jesus and having his his life in you is going to be something that will never dim, that will never be spoiled, that will never decay, will never fade away. It will be as wonderful to you as a million years after you first received it as when you first received it. It will still be giving you great joy. God has an incredible life for us beyond this life. Peter uses this word imperishable three times in the letter to talk about things that are glorious and imperishable and will never fade. The second time he uses it in verse 23, he's talking about the word of God that saves us. He says it's imperishable, it's glorious. And then in chapter 3, he uses, this, he uses the same word to describe the unfading glory and beauty of a, wo- a godly woman, a woman of God. An inheritance that is imperishable. And then he says it's an inheritance that is undefiled. Most of the things that give us joy in this world have a taint of something in them that's not so great. We like this bit, but oh, do we have to put up with that as well? It's soiled, it's tarnished, it's tainted by our sin and and the stuff that we do and the stuff that the world does to it. But the inheritance we receive in Jesus Christ will have none of that. It will be absolutely pure and perfect, unspoiled, untarnished. Everything about it will be eternally satisfying. And it's an inheritance that is unfading, undimmed, undiminished. The sun that never sets. We have such an inheritance and it will be joyfully satisfying after many millennia as it will be when we first set eyes on it. The first great hope that Peter gives these folks is that God has given us an indestructible life. The second great hope that Peter holds out for these folks is God has given you and is keeping for you a glorious inheritance. Many of these people were going to lose their homes. They'd lose their possessions. They might lose their businesses and their wealth. They could lose all sorts of things. Peter says there's something coming that's greater than all of that. And that is being kept for you in heaven by God. The readers might be thinking, and some of you might be thinking, well, that's just for people who make it all the way through. You know, if the pressure comes on, I'm I'm worried I'm going to falter. I'm going to fall and I'll fall away and, and I won't be able to make it all the way through. And so Peter gives these people a third wonderful reason for having hope. And it's this. That God is going to bring them all the way home. Look at this. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. See all of this is about what God is doing. At some point in the book of Peter we're going to find how we can respond to what God is doing. But at the beginning of the book, like at the beginning of many of the books in the Old Testament, the letters, God starts with what he's going to do. And he tells us what he is committing to this covenant before he gets us involved. Because it's not down to us and what we can do and how we can hold this thing together. It's down to God and what God is doing and how he's going to hold it all together for us. And he wants us to get that before he talks about our responses. In case we begin to think, well, well, my response could make this thing grow or fall or do whatever. He wants us to know, no, God is looking after this for you. We lived in some quite vulnerable places when we were growing up. We lived in some beautiful places that were very peaceful. But sometimes we lived in some quite vulnerable places. And I used to have some nightmares and things when I was trying to get to bed at night. And one of the things that would give me peace was when I could hear the piano playing. And it might be hymns, it might be choruses, it might be the songs from the shows, whatever it was. But what gave me peace was not the music. What gave me peace was knowing that if the piano was playing, my dad was in the house. Many of you, maybe some of you, have lived in very vulnerable places. We used to run a downtown classroom that Val used to oversee. The kids that came there came from terribly vulnerable places, places that should have been safe places, refugee camps and whatever, but they were terribly, terribly dangerous places. They'd seen some horrendous things. But you imagine living yourself in a walled city, tie strong walls, and there's a watchtower up in the corner, and there's somebody up that watchtower that never sleeps. Eyes always open all around and armed with the most powerful weapons that you could ever possibly find. You're going to sleep a little easier when at night you put your head down in your pillow and you look up and you can see the light in the watchtower. What's Peter saying here to these folks? He's saying God is in the watchtower. Your God is in your watchtower. You can put your head down on a pillow at night and you can look up and you will see that God is in the watchtower looking out for you. Whatever's going to happen in your life, whatever's going to, shaking is going to go on. Whatever your faith is going to, trials are going to be put through. The fire that you're sometimes going to go through. God is in the watchtower. He's watching over you. The psalmist knew that when he said in Psalm 121, I lift my eyes to the hills. I'm looking up. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not let your foot slip. He who keeps you will not slumber. He won't go to sleep on you. Behold, he who watches over Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps. For these folks, some of whom are thinking, I'm not going to be able to make this through. I'm going to crumble under the temptation of the persecution and whatever. Peter's saying, no, you've got a God in the watchtower. Creston. This young guy, who's 12 years old, he's a strong young guy and he's a fighter and he's a warrior. He's got cancer eating away at his body right now. What's his hope? Well, first of all, his great hope is that he has a power that's working in his body that's more powerful than the power of cancer. And it's the power of an indestructible life. And it flows and it courses through every vein of his being, more so than the cancer does. He has the resurrection power of Jesus Christ living in him, that is more powerful. He knows that whatever happens, God is keeping an inheritance for him. And when he puts his head down at night and he's got all those things beeping around him and and, and things on his body and everything that are keeping him monitored for what's going on, he can look up and he can know that God is in the watchtower. He's watching over him, he's watching over his life, and he's watching over his faith. And Peter says, because of that you can even rejoice, even though you're going through many trials. God is watching over your faith. And instead of destroying your faith, the things that you think are going to shake and destroy your faith, they're actually going to make your faith stronger. And enable you to stand, because God is watching over it. He really is the Savior who's going to bring us all the way through. In this you rejoice, he says. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials so that the test of genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The reason it's going to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus is because we won't have done it. We won't have held ourselves together. We won't have kept it moving right. We won't have kept everything all lined up in the right way. And that's what got us through to heaven. We were saved because God caused us to be born again. We were saved because God came to look for us when we were not looking for Him. We were saved because Jesus' love would not keep Him in heaven when we were bound up in our sin and in our darkness. We were saved because God moved in on our lives. And we are kept... Through to salvation because God who began a good work in us is going to bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. Because we have a God who is able to keep us from falling and to present us spotless before the throne of glory with great joy. We have a God who is able to finish what he has started. That's why we're going to make it through. We have a God who is going to keep us to the very end. And you and I know if we read our Bibles, That there is some suggestion in the New Testament that we could lose our faith if different things can happen to us. The way I look at that is this. I'm going to believe in God to keep me. I'm going to believe in God's promises, God's covenant that He will keep me. But I will live as if I could make some mistakes and lose some things. I'm going to live by making sure that as far as it is with me, I'm going to participate with what God is doing. By learning to live a life that pleases Him and walks with Him. And we'll find more about about that next week as we look at the next few verses. But when we make it through, it's not going to result in praise and glory and honor for me because I made it. It's going to result in praise and honor and glory for Jesus because He alone did it. He alone. Not my righteousness. His righteousness. Everything He has done. And so... These great hopes that are held out for us in these verses. And finally, the most wonderful hope of them all at the end. Peter says, we are going to meet Jesus face to face. We may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And he's saying there's an anticipation in our hearts because even though we have not already seen him, we love him. And though we don't see him now, we believe in him. We're rejoicing with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. We are going to meet Jesus face to face. If you ever want to look in his eyes, you're going to get that opportunity. If you've ever wanted to hear him talk to you personally and hear his voice, you're going to hear it. If you've ever wanted to be touched by him, to be held by him, to be loved by him, you are going to have that wonderful opportunity and nobody will be able to take it away from you. You are going to see Jesus face to face. And this is coming from Peter because Peter thought he would never see Jesus again. And the last look that Peter had was not a look that Peter wanted to remember. It came after Peter had just denied Jesus three times. Three times in the courts there where Jesus was being trialed. You were were with that Nazarene. You were with Jesus. No, no, I wasn't with him. I don't know him. I don't know the man. And the third time he says that, I don't know Jesus. I don't know the man. It's nothing to do with me. This is what Luke says in his gospel. Immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. I'm quite sure Jesus' face wasn't angry at him. But just a look. And Peter knew he had betrayed the person who he said he loved the most in the world. And he had to live with that for three days. If he'd never seen the face of Jesus again, he wouldn't have been writing this letter that look would have haunted him the rest of his life. Some of you feel you've disappointed Jesus like that. You've let him down. And there's a haunting in your mind about what it's going to mean when you see him again. Well, I can tell you what's going to happen when you see him again if you are hidden in Jesus Christ because Peter tells us what's going to happen. Peter says it's going to be a moment of great joy, inexpressible rejoicing. Why? Because the next time Jesus met Peter, It wasn't to disapproval. It wasn't to judgment. It wasn't Jesus looking down and so you let me down. You betrayed me. You denied me. It wasn't to any of that. You know what Jesus did? Jesus met Peter the first time and really impacted his life by filling his boat with fish. Peter had fished all night long, caught nothing. Jesus comes along and says, let down your nets on the other side. Well, Lord, I fished all night, caught nothing, but if you tell me to do it, that's what I'll do. It lets down the net on the other side, pulls up such a catch of fish that it just about sinks the boat. Peter gets down on his knees and he says, Lord Jesus, depart from me. I'm a sinful man. Jesus said, I want you to follow me. I'm going to make you fishers of men. Jesus Peter followed him. He left everything behind. He did all he could in his own strength, but he discovered that his own strength was not good enough. And he failed miserably in the moment where it seemed to matter the most. And now he's waiting to see what Jesus will do. The first sign is when Mary Magdalene comes running to the door and says, there's an angel said that Jesus is coming to come and meet you all. And he's coming to meet you too, Peter. He called him by name. That's what Jesus did. And then a little while later, Peter's out in the boat fishing again. Somebody comes walking on the seashore. It's Jesus. Another miraculous catch of fish. The grace of Jesus comes into his life. And Peter realizes something amazing. That the forgiveness of Jesus Christ runs very, very deep. It leads to forgetfulness. Even for Almighty God who knows everything from beginning to end. As far as the East is from the West, so far if I removed your transgressions from you. And your sins and your lawless acts, I will remember no more. I betrayed you, Jesus. You did? Yeah, do you not remember that? You looked at me and I just let you down and said some horrible things. Jesus never even mentions it. You know, in the Old Testament, the Aaronic blessing, the blessing of the high priest. Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you. The Lord lift up the light of his countenance upon you and give you his peace. That's what God wants to do. He wants to smile on us. He wants the radiance of his glory to cover us. And he was enabled to do that through what Jesus did on the cross. Taking all of our sins and everything that separates us from God. And all of the judgment and the just righteous punishment of God that we deserve was put on Jesus Christ. So that if we are in Christ there is no punishment left. There is no anger left. There is nothing left that's going to make him disappointed with who we are. Because of Jesus Christ, the Lord has blessed us. The Lord is keeping us. And the Lord has made his face to shine upon us. He's lifted up the light of his countenance upon us. And he's shining on us. And Peter knows that whatever happens to you, some of you may deny him when the pressure comes on. Peter did. And he knows that even if you deny him in those moments, you have a savior who loves you. And he's wanting to lift up his smile upon you. And so Peter holds up great hope for these people in a world that's shaking. He says, first of all, God has given you an indestructible life. Secondly, God is keeping for you an inheritance that is glorious. Thirdly, God is going to watch over you and keep you all the way through. And fourthly, most wonderfully... God is going to bring you face to face with your savior and the one that your heart really loves, Jesus Christ. Notice two things about these hopes. First of all, their future. Paul doesn't say to them, Peter doesn't say to them, okay, your lives are going to get easier. God will make sure your businesses thrive and everything works out and all of that. He doesn't say that because he can't say that. He tells them to look beyond Look beyond the now. He's going to get into the now in the next few chapters. But for the moment, let's start this thing off looking where we need to look and keep on looking, which is beyond. For what God is doing for us and what God has laid up for us. The second thing we need to note about all these hopes is that they are all based on the covenant faithfulness of God. They're not based on us and our works and how well we do. This is God's choice to love us like this. Isn't that amazing? And he settled it all on the cross and the resurrection.